Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And in a week when property developers Igloo Regeneration has introduced a new policy where all corporate entertaining, workshop catering and even staff expenses must now be vegetarian if staff wish to be reimbursed. Uh, NatWest announces that it's offering social enterprises the chance to receive a £20,000 grant for projects that create a direct social impact on a community with need. And coronavirus continues to take its toll on businesses across the world, particularly as manufacturing within China creates shortages for many global businesses. Flights are being cancelled to and from China, impacting on airlines and tourism and there's increased uncertainty across the rest of Asia seeing um, Japan for example cancelling their marathon Uh, so uh, we decided to to focus on a a subject quite close to my heart and And I think Trace's heart (laughs) which is the business of wine yes this was prompted because I had the pleasure about a month ago I went to a wine tasting and um, with some friends and it was quite a sophisticated wine tasting where we were being given of a course. lot of course of course we were being given a lot of information about uh, it was Australian and New Zealand wines but about the um, the geology the geography and the scale of, 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 of these vineyards and the different vineyards and you know how much you can produce and uh, how easy it is, etc. This was at Hencote in Shrewsbury, which is a, vine- a fairly new vineyard, about five years in the making. Then two weeks ago, I went on a tour of the vineyard uh, and the wi- uh, and the winery, and it really started to. Liquid is a funny thing. It's a f- it's a funny commodity. You know, so they've got these grapes. They turn it into liquid, and then the actual wine process is quite labour intensive, even with all the machinery that they've got. Uh, and it really got me thinking, and, and one of the people that we went with, he and I were like, okay, so how many bottles are there? Right, okay. How long does it take for that that bottle of champagne to go through, or champagne-style wine, sparkling wine, to go through that process? Oh, about three minutes, right. Okay, so how many people, right, how many can you shift in an hour? Right, what's the, hour, what's the hourly rate? How much is the bottle of wine? And I really started to think about, we think wine's expensive, okay, but it is actually quite labour intensive. So can I just check? Do um, human beings pick the grapes off the vines? So they um, so they are picked by hand there. They're sorted by hand. They're pressed by this incredible piece of kit. Not feet. Not feet, although the sommelier who did the tour has pressed wine with her feet as part of her training. Okay. But this this piece of kit, I mean, hugely expensive, and basically it's like a it's like a big immersion heater tank that's got a big bag inside it that inflates. So they put all the grapes in the in the immersion heater tank, and then inflate this bag, which pushes the grapes against the inside of the oh, tank. Right. So it squidges that, them. Yeah, but not in the way normally you think not about down. squidging down. But it's squ- so that in itself was fascinating. Then. You know how long things keep for um, the filtration process, it, it, just the bottling. So it was all really interesting. The drinking and the drinking, of course. Um, so it, it, yeah, it really and 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 also it's one of those businesses where she she, um, she was saying that the vines have been planted about five years. 
and last year was their first harvest. Wow. So, you know, you're in for the long haul. Yeah, you've if got you... some upfront investment yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. And no guarantee that those vines are going to produce nope. good grapes. No, nope. and, and, and also the, the things that they can do to tweak the yield that they're getting. Uh, so I just thought it was really, really interesting, and I thought it was worth us just having a bit of a look. Yes. Um, for, for those who, you know, you might be sat at home having a glass of wine, but do you ever really think about the fact that somebody took a punt somewhere along the line and was brave enough to set up a vineyard uh, and then go through the process and then run the risk and then wait the time it takes to see whether or not you're going to get right. a return on your investment? Yes, yeah. So... You had a little nosy round. What did you find, Tracy? Well, I Tracy? was inspired by your visit to Hencote and I thought I'd have a look at the English wine industry. And apparently English wines are now being ranked um, among the best wines available. So I think a few years ago, an English wine, you know, you really wouldn't want to be drinking yeah. it. Uh, but now the statistics, these are from 2017. I couldn't find any more recent ones. But... Um, in 2017, they were talking about there being 503 commercial vineyards and 133 wineries in England and Wales, and that the industry was worth over £130 million, which isn't massive, but way bigger than I thought it would be. For the UK? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that they're talking about there being 13 wine producing regions, Mercia in Mercia, sorry, seven in East Anglia and another seven in the southwest, six in the southeast, five in the Thames and Chilterns area and four in Wessex. And the wines made in, in England and Wales are approximately 66 percent sparkling wine. 24% still white wine and the remaining 10% either red or rosé wine. So I, I was really interested to see that. And also a record number of 3 million vines were planted last year in counties such as Norfolk, Essex, Northampton. I thought I would have thought Northampton was too far north, but clearly not. And Suffolk. And it's becoming increasingly important in the UK agricultural sector. The one thing that the sommelier who, who did the tour, a lady called Sahara, she was she was lovely, very knowledgeable, um, and but told told us stuff in really simple terms so that you know we could understand because it's her world, it's not our world. Uh, but she was saying that um, actually to be growing Pinot Noir grapes this far north is quite unusual. So you, your comment about Northampton, you know, one of the reasons why it's a challenge in the UK is basically because where we are not on the planet, sun. obviously, uh, not enough sun. But um, that's why they have to be careful about how they blend the wines and they have a winemaker. And apparently the winemaker is God. The, you know, what they say goes, they, they, they know when's the right time to pick the grape, how long to leave it, how to blend it, you know, when it's ready, all of that stuff. I love stuff. the idea. The winemaker is God. Yeah. yeah I, I agree. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, perhaps we should do bread next week. <laughs> Another thing I, I looked for, I, I literally put into Google the business of wine because that was the sub subject. I thought, I wonder what will come out at the top. And almost all of the first page results on Google for the business of wine as a search were 
professional training qualifications to do with wine. Okay. So very top of the list was a professional certificate in the business of wine. It was at an American institution and it's designed for people who are going to get involved in wine related occupations. And you could be a sommelier or you could be involved in making wine. Uh, The sort of cost you're looking at was about two and a half thousand dollars. Minimum completion time was a year. And it's all about um, the knowledge that the wine will give you in your career. And apparently you must be over 21 to take these courses in America. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think the other thing that's quite interesting is that I mean, I like to drink wine, but of course, a lot of people invest in wine. Yeah, you know, and actually so it, buy a bottle and don't drink it. Yeah, or buy you know, crates of crates it. of the stuff and don't drink it. That's, um, that's foreign to me. It's totally, yeah. I mean, it's like when they say what to do with leftover wine, and I'm sort of like, what? What are you talking about? Freeze it in little ice cubes, apparently. Apparently, apparently. But but um, so one of the websites I found, um, which you may have looked at, is winebusiness.com. And if you are interested in data, then this is a really good website for you. I missed that. How did I miss that one? Well, it's got wine uh, analytics report, wine vines analytics, um, the buyer's guide online. So what wine to buy. Uh, It talks about buying bulk wine rather you know, which as an investment of, <laughs> yeah, not, not of to drink, not the just weekend. like not like a box or to yourself with a straw. Um, please drink responsibly, obviously. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's a really interesting website. It's 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 up to date. There's stuff every day. So if wine is your thing, um, whether it's from an investment point of view or from a business point of view, um, or whether it's just for pleasure, winebusiness.com is a really good website. You're listening to the business community on Callan FM. And in other news, you couldn't help but spot that the world's richest man is in the news again. And uh, he's pledged $10 billion, which is about £7.7 billion, to help fight climate change. And he actually announced this on his Instagram account and said the fund would begin distributing money this summer. And he wants to work alongside others to both amplify known ways and to explore new ways of fighting the devastating impact of climate change. So, Heather, what do you think about the world's richest man donating in the region of 8% of his $130 billion fortune? Well, uh, it's not so much what I think, but it's what other people think. There are quite a few people who think... Oh, no, no, I want to know what you think, (laughs) Heather. (laughs) <laughs> there are quite a few people think that it would be better for him to pay more tax rather than creating a ten billion pound climate that change. Just one interesting fund. point of view, yeah. Um, but the thing that I think, I mean, great, he's got an awful lot of money. He's giving away eight percent of it. That's that's wonderful. But what it, what realistically can be achieved with ten billion pounds? You know, this is this is saving the planet stuff, and actually. Although it sounds like an awful lot of money, and, and it, it is a significant amount of money, you know what is actually going to be in, achieved? Because it's one thing um, finding different ways or, or, or potential solutions, but that's got to be rolled out, and that's going to involve people developing new technology, adopting new ways of living. It's not quite as simple as let's let's chuck ten billion at it and it'll fix it, because it's not going to, uh, and. And whilst it's admirable, 
this is a long, not that we've got long, but it, it's a it's a long game. And I don't really know how far 10 billion is going to go. What do you think? Well, I was also reading about other people's opinions as well. Um, oh, no, Tracy, what's your <laughs> opinion? Well, the, some Amazon employees have urged him to do more to fight climate change um, and also have pointed out that um, he's financing something called the Blue Origin Space Programme, which comes with its own sizable carbon footprint. Mm. So uh, I, I'm That's not so like... sure that money will do everything. Sometimes your actions are really quite important as yeah. well. He has been criticised for not signing the giving pledge, but that's up to him to choose. This is where we've talked about this before with some of our um, profiles, where the super rich promise to give away half their wealth during their lifetime. Um, and he previously has only done limited philanthropy. I think the biggest donation before this latest one of $10 million $10 billion was thought to be $2 billion um, to help homeless families and fund schools in September 2018. However, he may do some of this stuff privately. I suspect the fact that he actually posted about this one on his Instagram account perhaps suggests he doesn't do um, secret donations. But I yeah. don't really know. Well, and it goes back to what we were talking about last week, which is about that public persona versus your private persona and, you know, what you do with your own money and what you do with your corporation's money. It, you know, it's kind of the same thing as well, yeah. you know. So uh, for me personally, the one thing that Amazon could do to save the planet is start putting thing, more than one thing in a box. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not not these enormous boxes with loads of space and yes. paper around it for one tiny little box yeah. inside it. I, I don't understand. It's machine efficiency. Yeah. It's automation, isn't it? It's, it's to get to it be. into a box as quickly but, as possible, I guess. Yeah. So I think there are there are things that could be done there. Um, one thing that I found, which is a bit of a it's a bit of a cheeky one, but I quite liked it. It was um, it's on a website called CambridgeNetwork.co.uk. Now we're all interested in marketing our businesses and and. Uh, getting people to buy our stuff or um, take interest in our stuff. This article um, published uh, yesterday, Plunder Your Way to Better Marketing Messages. I thought, oh, I like the sound of this. Plunder, yeah. Uh, having just bought Marketing for, for Dummies, um, <laughs> which is sitting by my bed along with all the other books that I need to read. Um, and they say, uh, writing is hard and crafting a message that grabs your customers can be really tricky. Uh when they just don't seem to, you, you write stuff and it, it doesn't have the appeal that you'd hope for. But what they're saying is, in, in summary, is that actually, if you want to know how to market to your potential customers, you need to go and see who those people are buying from and what they value. So go to your competition, go to your competitor's website. If you run a restaurant and you want to know what the people within who attend your restaurant or might attend your restaurant are going to be interested in. Go and see what people are saying about other restaurants. Is it the quality of the food? Is it so the service? So people comment on what matters to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and positively and negatively. You know, we've talked before about this, you know, where do you where do you look on the, you know, the trust pilot reviews and the travel zoo comments and all of those types of things. If you go for that middle ground, what are people talking about? It's the quality of the food, right? Okay, so major on the quality of the food and there will be people for whom that's really important. Uh, customer service or whatever it might be. Uh, so, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. It's kind of like, yeah, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, 
Just go and see. Yeah, they're telling you. Yeah, what they're, they're telling you. In. They say that um, you know people are are sharing their views all over the internet all the time. So your market research is pretty yeah. much done for you. I wouldn't call it plundering. I would call it being sensible. <laughs> well, yes, yes, but it's it's yeah. yes. I, I mean the headline. I Obviously, the from. headline caught my eye. <laughs> The cheeky little headliner. Yeah, yeah. So I've picked up that the Information Commissioner is looking for data protection practitioners to nominate themselves for the award, the Practitioner Award for Excellence in Data Protection. Mm-hmm. And it's for the third um, type, of, third of the awards. The, the previous winners were the Data Protection Officer for North Kesteven Council in Lincolnshire and the Group Policy Officer at Vodafone Group Services. So if you think you've had an outstanding impact in relation to accountability and inspired public trust in relation to data protection, then this is the award for you. You can nominate yourself or a colleague and the nominations are considered by a panel of judges. The winner will be announced at the Data Protection Practitioners Conference on the 6th of April. And you can enter the awards Right up till 5pm on Tuesday, the 3rd of March. So actually I have to get thinking about this now. Mm. So if you are interested, go and have a look at the ICO website. It's ico.org.uk and we'll put a link for that and everything else we talk about on our website, thebusiness.community. In the discovery section this week, I want to talk about... Uh, an event that I went to. You know, I said that I was going to start going to lots of events. Oh, yes. Well, I went to one last week. Another uh, one. Another one, uh, which was at um, the the Shrewsbury campus of the Ches- of Chester University, which is in the old Guild Hall in Shrewsbury, which is right in the middle of the car park that oh, is very heavily flooded and uh, next to the theatre. So um, if anybody knows sh- those bits of Shrewsbury... Uh, in How the was the car park last week? They were putting up the flood defences, so um, I'm glad it wasn't this week because yeah. I think it might have been cancelled. Mm. But um, it, it it was it's part of the Darwin Festival, and it was about the evolution of the workplace. So they had a few speakers, one of whom I think we should preview, we should profile in in coming weeks. Uh, who's he's the guy who founded Ella's Kitchen? They're the people who make the organic. Um, children's, you know, the, the, the really colourful pouches of yeah. children, like baby food. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think we should, and he's written a book as well, so I think we should probably talk about him. Uh, That's an easy win for you as well, because you've heard him speak. That's and good. I've heard him speak, yes. Yeah. But but one thing that was really interesting, so, so there was him speaking and then there were a, a couple of other people who were um, Equally interesting. But do you know the thing that really captured me? And this is more about from a public speaking point of view than anything else. He started, he did a little intro and he said, right. And he started his talk. He said, I'm going to play you a piece of music. And he played Jesse J. It's all about the money. And he just put up on the screen the, the, the first lyric, which is, it was something like, I guess everybody's got a price. I wonder how they sleep at night when the, when the deal comes first and the truth comes second. Okay. Okay. So that's how he starts his his whole talk, and it's about. The, I wish I'd thought of that. It's, oh, it's so clever. I was like, oh, and he played it really loud, and it was like, yeah, boom, that's got our that's got our um, attention. But but essentially, he was talking about um, that businesses don't exist. A business is a piece of paper. People make a business. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so so that was sort of the starting point. But then the other speakers, when we're talking about the evolution of the workplace and how things have changed, uh, there was um, there was a guy who I haven't got the leaflet, which I'm really annoyed about. But there's a guy who's part of um, oh his name's Mark Watton. And he is high up in Bostick. You know the people who make glue? Yeah. They um, they outsource to home workers, customer service and, and telephone answers. All their staff. My mind had leapt ahead then, thinking, what on earth about glue manufacture can they outsource? Well, well it, it's, yeah. It, no, yeah. I get you. Now I get you. <laughs> but, so they're, um, and... This is where he said um, they the people are employed not based on their ability to get to a, a particular location, but on their ability to do a job. Brilliant. They, they, and it means that work is accessible to people who may have, um, you, you know, for whom uh, not having to commute every day will help their mental health. And they can work flexible hours. They set what hours they want to work, and they're contracted for those hours. The average work, member of their workforce is 45 years of age plus. Um, they have low attrition, around about 10% versus the national average of about 45% in, the, in, a, in, 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 a, in a similar. Yeah. Um, and they pay the real living wage uh, and a bonus. Wow. And, and so that, and they work around their life and not the other way around. So, you know, that in itself was just really, really interesting. So if you get the chance to... Um, Look at Paul Lindley or Mark Watton um, and and the business model, particularly the Mark Watton one, I thought was really, really interesting. I'm um, going to stick with that idea, Heather. The which one? The, the Bostick one. The Bostick. Oh, very good. Come on, catch oh, up. Yeah, very good. Anyway, so that was what I, um, that was my discovery. Some real food for thought there. What have you got, Tracy? Oh, you've got a book. I've got a book here. Can you hear it, listeners? An actual hardback book in my mitts here. I love that. Um, it's not completely finished yet, but I felt the need to share this because I absolutely love it. Ooh. It's called The Science of Storytelling by Will Store. And not Will Story? No. <laughs> Will Store. Not E. Okay. Uh, it says on the front, if you want to write a novel or a script, read this book. But I would say it's not just for budding authors, not, not just for novels and scripts. We all tell a story. And in business, writing, copywriting, writing your marketing materials, writing the blogs that support it, writing um, a presentation... We, we've talked yeah. about this before. Mm. TED Talk Storytelling is mm. one, mm. one of our favourite books as mm. well. Is is that you need to know how to write that appeals to the listeners and the yeah, readers, keeps them engaged. Yeah. And this is it's particularly good because it it just feels so. Oh, I, I don't know how to say it. it it's just feels so well researched and science based, and but it's so different to anything else I've read before. Okay, so. This is um, described by a few people as being the best book of, on story on the craft of storytelling that they've ever read. Um, that was by Matt Haig. Um, Adam Rutherford said, rarely has a book engrossed me more and forced me to question everything I've ever read, seen or written. A masterpiece. And it is a Sunday Times bestseller as well. And what it does is it 
he looks into the workings of the human brain. That's where I'm up to at the moment. And it's understanding how we shape the way we think, the use of metaphor, the way that we construct concepts in our mind. And he, and he gives good examples from literature, you know, and, and, and sort of brings this book about storytelling to life. So he's not just telling stories. you do it this way. He's saying you do it this way because... Yeah, absolutely. This, okay. It's really thought-provoking. And he's done some research. He's, he's looked into neuroscience and psychological research. And he, he looks at the use of myth and archetype, as I say, metaphor, as to how we use them to make stories which help us to make sense of the world if you understand yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what, he's, what he's saying in what I've read so far, certainly, is that that is the way that our brain is wired. But it, well, that, isn't that the premise of, of fairy stories? You know, when you're a kid, yeah. it's making sense of the world. It's, it, it's exposing you to a little bit of fear. You know, there's a baddie, isn't there? There's like the, the wolf in the three, uh, the three little pigs or whatever. Yeah. So I suppose it builds on that. So absolutely. And that, I've read somewhere, somebody described it as, and now this was by somebody who was wanting to write a book, but they said they felt like they were cheating after they'd read this book because it all, was all so obvious as to what they needed to do. So I haven't, I haven't got to that sort of stage. I'm at the stage where I'm going, wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So that's excellent book. It's called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. What I did do was go to his website. I uh, found out that he's uh, a writer, an award-winning writer. He's the author of five books, including a novel, The Hunger and the Howling um, of Killian Lone. Um, and he's written for The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker, The New York Times. He's won prizes from the National Press Club and the AFM Award for Best Investigative Journalism. He's written books on sexual violence against men, which won him the Amnesty International Award and a One World Press Award. Um, he's also teaches, now this is what I'm leading up to, um, classes in London on the science of storytelling. And um, I did notice that he's got a workshop coming up um, about the science of storytelling for business. Oh. just sort of proves me right is that you oh. need to tell stories for business and um, the tickets are available on Eventbrite and we will put a link on our website but uh, e even if you don't get a chance to read the book just have a little think about um, doing a bit of research into storytelling because it's relevant to your business and to your marketing your copywriting it's even relevant to your company culture and getting people to come along with you um, as, as your employees or even to all your stakeholders. You need to tell a story. This week on The Business Community, we're profiling a lady that we first mentioned back in December last year. And uh, she was at that time voted the, one of the, well, the number one of the country's top bosses as voted for by readers of Management Today. She is the CEO of GSK and her name is Emma Walmsley and uh, Emma Natasha Walmsley she's roughly the same age as me but she's the chief executive officer of GlaxoSmithKline so we, we went down different paths in our life choices 
Before she worked for GSK, she worked for L'Oreal for 17 years, has been a non-exec director of Diageo, and is also is it a non-exec director of Microsoft. Yeah, for, since September last year. She was um, brought up in Barrow-in-Furness and, and the daughter of a vice admiral, Sir Robert Walmsley and Lady Christina Walmsley. And she's got a master's degree in classics and modern languages from Oxford University. What do you know about Emma Walmsley, Heather? Well, firstly, when I saw that she was born in Barrow-in-Furness, which um, is where, isn't that where they build submarines or ships? It's a big, um, yeah, it's a big nautical entity of some sort. And I found some stories where she um, was invited when President Trump came over last year. Um, there was an event that was hosted by him and the Prince of Wales, I think. Oh, that's why when I did a Google search, it did Walmsley Trump, and I wasn't quite sure what, was what, going what on. you were going. Yeah, so you didn't, didn't click, click on, on that. It, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, that's well, good. she she sat next to him apparently. Oh, okay. um, but um, but what was quite interesting? We've talked quite a lot about the gender pay gap when she um, took on the position at GSK from um, Mr. Witty whose first name escapes me at the moment, um, she was paid 25% less than he was oh. as she came in, which I think was quite interesting. But as is the case with these these things, you go down a bit of a rabbit hole, don't you? And I came across um, uh, a, a sort of interviewee article that she'd written on a website called leanin.org. Um, Good, we found the same article. Yeah, well, it, it was great. So basically she was talking about how she came to be uh, the website itself is great, by the way. Um, but how she came to be offered the position. Um, she, she, she was at a networking lunch with the go. chief exec of GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and they just started having a conversation. And then before you knew it, it had turned into a job offer. There you go, folks. The power so of networking. The power of networking. But she was in a bit of a quandary because she, had, she, they, she was currently, at that time, she was living in China. Um, they'd gone to Shanghai. She was involved with L'Oreal, so she was very high up um, in L'Oreal. And she, she felt a little bit guilty about whether the idea of uprooting her family, which got four children, was actually going to be fair because they'd only been in China for three years, having uprooted them from New York. Um, so... She talks about some of the things that um, that she the thought processes that she went through, and the one that really resonated with me, apart from the the family guilt thing, she said um, she said I spent a week persuading myself I'd be insane to do it. It was too risky. A new industry, a new company, a new culture, and a major career acceleration. Am I really qualified? And it's just that classic imposter syndrome that remains with people even in the highest ranking roles you know it's yeah. it, it it i don't know i don't know what we can do about it uh, it's particularly prevalent in women but it uh, does exist with men as but well but it, it yeah. does exist with men but it, it you know it's that classic okay when will you believe and i, and I think i think you found the same up, article well, didn't you yeah i picked up a similar sentence but this one really resonated with me and she she was talking about this decision making process and even at this senior point in her career, she said, I'm starting to be convinced I have a right to be at the top table in business. 
starting to be yeah, convinced. She's already at yeah, the top table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's just starting to be convinced that she's got a right to be there. Yeah. One of the things when she was offered the post, there was a bit of um bit of a wobble. People were like, Ah oh, yeah, but she doesn't know she doesn't know the industry. She doesn't know the pharmaceutical. Yeah, she, knows she knows makeup yeah. at L'Oreal. And she actually said, look, you know, I don't need to. I'm not, you know, I don't need to know about... Well, she said, I'm not, not adopted. I'm not adopted. Yeah, yes. yeah. She said, I, I need to know about the market. I don't need to know about the, the product and how they're actually rolled yeah. out and used. And her leadership style is described as strong and dynamic. Um, who mixes a personable style with a steely focus. She sets clear objectives. I love that. Somebody who sets clear objectives. And there are lots of KPIs to measure delivery. You know where you are with her. She doesn't suffer fools gladly, does she? I don't think. And apparently in January 2018, it was reported that she'd replaced 50 of GSK's top managers across the company's business and created a number of new roles. So, uh, yes, she's certainly getting what she wants out of that uh, management team. I found another article that I wanted to share with you, and this is in um, thisismoney.co.uk, and it, it talks about when she was growing up, how her family would hold an annual debate over where they would spend their summer holidays. And little Emma would present her choice, listing the advantages and pointing out why the other options were rubbish. Apparently, she always won. Oh, right. <laughs> and the article says that her early aptitude for winning people over through well-researched analysis has set the tone for much of her career. An interest, yeah. She looks like a very interesting lady. Uh, yeah, I didn't see. There, I think there were a few interviews. I didn't have time to actually watch some of the interviews. I'd like to see how she comes across. Yes. Uh, but she, I mean, she. <laughs> She must be fairly charismatic because you you couldn't hold a position like that and not be. No, indeed. Um, So that is Emma Natasha Walmsley. We will be back next week um, with more news, views, reviews and profiles. But in the meantime, you can go and listen to our podcast. You can go and catch up on our chat splats. Heather, tell me in a few simple words what a chat splat is a chat splat is where tracy and i try to limit ourselves to 10 minutes to talk about a subject that we don't even know what we're going to talk about until literally after. we don't we're not joking no. there until after we well you'll probably you gather it after we we, <laughs> no we, hit, we hit record and then somehow we end up talking about something in particular and so we have managed the 10 minutes all bar for two uh, episodes of chat splat where we went over by maybe 10 seconds or yes, so. Yes, but we, we're fairly good at it. But we hope it just gives you a bit of an insight into the way our minds think when we're not thinking about I'm business. I'm not sure that's healthy. But <laughs> well, well, there we go. But we don't do it with wine. We, maybe we should. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening and do make sure you join us next week because we'd love you to join us for the business community on Callan FM. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.